Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of In the Ring with Acacia Courtney. I'm your host, Acacia Courtney, as we're on episode 22 of this podcast, and it's a fun one coming up here today. As we just wrapped up the two-year-old sale season, that's it. We're all done. The Santa Anita sale uh, just took place back on June 23rd out at Santa Anita Racetrack for Phasic Tipton. And now we will turn our attention to the yearling sales, getting ready for the July sale soon. That will be next on the agenda for Phasic and looking forward to all that this summer will hold as well and getting a chance to see some of these exciting, well-bred yearlings and especially looking out for some of those new stallions too. I'll be covering all of that in a few weeks. And in a few weeks, we're going to get a chance to see some more two-year-olds in the spotlight with the start of Saratoga. You know, everybody's going to be pointing for that. Delmar as well. Some big performances, I'm sure, coming up down the line. But for now, recapping a little bit of this sales season and talking about some very special memories from some special horses too. So get, uh, get set. We've got a fun show coming up. And as always, I really appreciate you listening to In the Ring. Very happy to be joined by Lucas Marquardt, who you probably have seen his videos if you've paid any attention at all to pretty much any of the sales. Lucas of Thoroughstride. Thank you so much for coming on today, Lucas. I'm really looking forward to talking about the role that you play in a lot of the sales that we see throughout the season. Oh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So tell me a little bit about Thoroughstride and and what you offer, um, particularly when it comes to those sales. We do uh, Thoroughstride launched in 2010, and we produce uh, inspection videos. I guess for lack of a better term, um, but they're, they're essentially little commercials for the horses uh, that are are going to be offered at auction. Um, walking videos um, that often include a, a confirmation photo. Uh, and sometimes include a, a voiceover, just kind of detailing the pedigree and going going over some of the, the highlights of the pedigree and, and the race record of any siblings or you know the sire and the dam and that kind of thing. And um, yeah, just the, the the videos are about a, a minute long, and they're they're meant to act as a, a tool for both buyers and sellers, uh, for sellers to help promote the horse before the auction, um, and and sometimes after the auction if they you know if the horse doesn't get sold through mm-hmm. the ring. Um, and then for buyers, they, they've been useful to, you know, like a, if a bloodstock agent is on the, on the sales grounds and uh, needs to maybe send a video to a, a client and say, hey, we're, we're on this horse, take a, take a look at him or her and, and see what you think. And, um, you know, it's been useful kind of by, you know, like I said, by, by, by both buyers and sellers just as a, as a means of communication. And, and obviously in, in today's day and age with social media being such a... Mm-hmm. Uh, important and effective way to to communicate. It's they've been useful on there as well. You teased up my next question perfectly. How have you seen, uh, kind of, with all the digital mediums available and and so much more social media presence? How have you seen that kind of changed and the need for being able to have something like this? Because it, it's not really, I think. Um, a thing that our industry or the sales industry has really tapped in too, too much. And then you have, you know, your company that provides these, these videos that are really invaluable to, like you said, especially even if it's somebody that's not physically on the grounds. Yeah, totally. It's, it's, it's been a, a funny progression. Like when, when we started, mm-hmm. smartphones were just kind of getting going. So it was a little bit before the days when everybody had a video camera and everybody mm-hmm. had a phone right on them. Um, so at that point it was, they were useful because they, they 
just there wasn't really another option to to get your horse out there. Um, and now in a, in a short period of time, everybody has those tools, you know, literally on their phone. Um, but to get quality stuff and to get good footage and to get a good photo, um, you know, you generally need better equipment. Um, but everybody's on Twitter, everybody's on Facebook, mm-hmm. and, and or most people are at least. And um, and I think that you know, again, like back when I started in 2010, a lot of horse racing people weren't on Twitter, or at least in the, the you know, consigners and, and some of the older set of the buyers. And as they got on social media and as they felt more comfortable using their computers, um, it, it things exploded about four or five years ago, where everybody there was such a demand for this kind of material, where you know, good quality shots that you know people could post or people could look at and. Mm-hmm. Um, it just kind of dovetailed nicely into what was happening in, in the world of technology. It's so funny how quickly things change. I'm talking about uh, before a lot of people had smartphones. It makes us sound so antiquated, but it really wasn't that long ago. And uh, tell me a little bit about the creative process for you. Like you said, high quality camera. Um, obviously, iPhones have come a long way, but I'm sure they're nothing compares to being able to have those planned out shots. And uh, just tell me a little bit about the process of getting that. Yeah, we've you know we've got some we've got some great equipment, and I've got some great people working for me, um, and you know the the equipment is definitely one one half of the equation, and the other half is just kind of knowing horses and knowing racing and knowing how best to present a horse in front of the camera, you know, um, and it's not you know we're not splitting the atom, but at the same time it's uh, it's a skill set that is is somewhat unique, uh, standing a horse correctly for a confirmation photo, so it accentuates the positives and, and doesn't make a horse look, you know, make a horse look crooked or camped Mm -hmm. out or, um, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, uh, uh, you know, just getting, being patient to get a good walking video or to get a good confirmation shot. Um, so it's good. It's kind of a combination of the, of the technology and, and, you know, good equipment, um, and just the, the skill set of, of, of being able to go out and work with the, the horse people on the grounds, the people at the farm, the people at the consignment, um, and just being patient to get good, good enough stuff to where you'd really want to put it out in front of people. When you have a horse that does have some confirmation flaws, because none of them is perfect, we try to find the most correct ones, of totally course. Wrong. But- Every horse I film is totally perfect. Absolutely. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. But say you do have something that, you know, you want to kind of highlight, we'll put it that way. Uh, What are some of the things and some of the techniques that you use for that? And um, is it, is it a posture? Say you have somebody that's not familiar with what a horse looks like and is with you. What would be something that you would say to them when setting these horses up? Yeah. The the biggest thing is that you want for the confirmation photo, at least you, Mm -hmm. you want the horse to look square. You don't, uh, you don't want the front feet too far underneath him or her. Um, you really don't want the back legs to go out behind the hip. Um, you, a lot of your, your listeners will, will understand what the, the words camped out mean, but it's a, mm-hmm. a confirmational flaw where the, the, the hind leg kind of sits out behind the, the horse's back end. Um, it is a, a undesirable trait. Um, and, and, you know, in terms of having like the horses stretched out enough where it gives a good impression to the, the viewer of, of a horse with some scope, a horse, you know, a horse with some, some air underneath it. Um, and it's not, you know, you're not, you know, you're not presenting a, f- a false picture, but you're, you're mm-hmm. making sure that 
the horse looks as good as possible when you you know when you're you're putting it in front of somebody you do stuff for the two-year-old sales also giving sales pretty much everything do you approach horses of a different age in any sort of different ways whether it's maybe a two-year-old or a, a yearling or, or or a horse of racing age perhaps um it's a good question um yes and no i mean like like a good confirmation photo is 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 kind of a good confirmation photo but mm-hmm. um you honestly you can get away with a lot more with with weanlings because they're just you know just because they're like little bodies and they're kind of easier yeah. to, to manage back and forth they can be a little you know a little a little spunky and, can, and that can be a, challenge. <laughs> a little but, spirited yeah yeah exactly but, but they i mean honestly all of them are can be like that too you mm-hmm. know the yearlings are uh they're getting fit for the first time they're really fit for the first time and so they're feeling their oats um and then the two-year-olds are are reeking uh, reaching uh, peak fitness, you know? Um, so it's, I guess the challenge is really just how you work with the horses, horses in terms of patience and then knowing the consigners, getting a good rapport with them. Um, you know, I've got people that I work with, uh, year after year. And, and so we can say, all right, you're breezing on this day. Maybe we'll do the videos either that afternoon or we'll do them the next morning where the horses have, you know, a little of the edge taken off, you know, mm-hmm. um, and you know, we're, they're on the walker in the morning. Let's do right after that. Or let's do in the afternoon where they're, uh, you know, the, some of the starch has been taken out, just some things like that. So, um, not necessarily in terms of, of the actual videos themselves, but in, in terms of the process of making sure they're at their best, um, you know, there's definitely some things you, you do at different age, age ranges that, you know, would be specific to that age range, if that makes sense. Well, obviously, uh, last year, the whole sale season was turned on its head because of the pandemic, and we've seen a return to normalcy this year. Um, what are some of the things that you've noticed in the two-year-old sales season, with just as we're recording this, one two-year-old sale still to come? What have, have been some of the things that you've noticed, uh, maybe just some reflections on the season in general, the response from both buyers and consigners? I, you know, I, I think the general, you know, the general consensus that it was a, a good, strong season and a good mm-hmm. return to form, you know, and I, nobody really knew what to expect last year. Um, and business for me exploded last year because nobody knew what, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, March and April and May, like nobody knew really what was going to happen. Like, were, were sales going to get canceled? Were, you know, where were the year, you know, was something like Keeneland September going to get, you know, get called off because of a, a, a spike in Kentucky? You know, you just, you weren't quite sure what would happen. Um, so we ended up doing a lot more videos. But this year it was a, it was a nice, I think people just got back into their groove and, uh, you know, for us, we, we remained busy. I think it was just something where people wanted to keep on, to, you know, they realized the value of the videos and wanted to keep on, um, keep on doing them and, and, and using them as a tool. Um, so in terms of business, we, we, we kept, you know, just as busy this year as we were, were last, but mm-hmm. it was just a nice feeling. It was good to see people do well again. I had some, some clients do really well. We had, I think there were six seven figure yearling or seven figure two year olds this year. Mm-hmm. And we filmed five of them, um, which is, is just, it's nice to see for your clients when they do mm-hmm. well. And uh, we had, you know, several, we had, uh, we do a lot of work with Wayward Free Stable and 
they had the uh, the 2.6 million dollar Nyquist Colt uh, down at the Gulfstream sale, mm-hmm. and um, you know, so we, it was good to just to, to see clients being rewarded for just being steadfast, you know. You talked about filming some of those seven figure purchases. Do you kind of follow their career or their horses that maybe you feel a little emotionally attached to and you want to see how they do at the racetrack after you've been a little piece of their journey as far as the sale season? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, I, I definitely follow yeah. them. I do a little bit of handicapping. So I, yeah. I make lists and I've got, you know, I, I know who I like and, and uh, I've got my, like, sn- you know, sneaker horses in there that I'm going to bet first time out. Um <laughs> But it's, you know, because it's, it's going to be honest with you, because you're, you're there for such a short period of time, there are some that you get attached to, but more it's just rooting for clients, you know, mm-hmm. uh, any, like anytime Becky Thomas, it's a sequel has a, as a runner or Meg Levy at, at Blue Water has a, a runner that turns out really good. Like it the, genuinely just makes me happy, you know, just to see, just to see them, them do well. Um, so it's, you know, you're, you're rooting for the horses, but more you're, you're rooting for the people mm-hmm. behind them. There's so many people that it takes just to get a horse to a racetrack, let alone to be successful um, in kind of a, a full circle moment sometimes and seeing that success. But what was it about what you do now that really appealed to you? What made you choose this route in life and, and starting Thoroughstride? I, I, I worked at the Thoroughbred Daily News as a reporter mm-hmm. for... Oh good probably 10 years before I launched this. So I'd been in the business for a long time and, mm-hmm. and had and covered the sales scene and it just seemed like a, a good opportunity. Um, and I'll, you know, I, I, I kind of like, I'm not antisocial, but a little, little <laughs> asocial. And so like, you know, being, having a business where I was, uh, uh, by myself and kind of doing my own thing and, and being my own boss that very much appealed to me. So, um, you know, I've got, I've got a bunch of people working with me now, which is, which is great. Um, so it, it's definitely not like a, a, not like a lone wolf out there by any means, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, like a lot of people who, who work for themselves, that's, that was the biggest thing is just kind of being able to call my own shots. What is it about the sales that makes them so electric? What are some of the things that you enjoy most about that scene? It's, I mean, it's, it's that, that, I mean, and it's, and it's every sale. It's not yeah. uh, just here and there, but that ability to buy a horse for, to see something in a horse that nobody else has seen or everybody mm-hmm. else has just overlooked, um, have faith in the horse and then have it reward you a few months later or a year later. Um, you know, I had a client, uh, Story Atchison at, at Dark Star this year, I was going through uh, some of my results and she'd bought a Unified yearling last year, Unified Colt mm-hmm. for 19000 and resold it to Spendthrift Farm uh, at OBS March for four hundred thousand. Wow! Yeah, and it's and it's you know that's a you know, that's a particularly huge knock, but you know it happens it happens every sale where you get you know you'll you'll, you'll find a horse that just slipped through the cracks or you know maybe just needed a, a little tweak here or there and mm-hmm. and somebody was able to, to provide that and um, and so there, there was just that excitement of of uh, of promise and of 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 potential that, you know, the, the beginning of every sale feel, feels a little bit like Christmas morning, you know, and, and that's, I think everybody in the business kind of feels like that. And, and that's kind of what drives them. 
Yeah, you're a little giddy when you get there, for sure. Uh, you feel that excitement, that anticipation, so to speak. And as mentioned, we're wrapping up the two-year-old season. We'll have uh, yearlings coming back. We'll get to have uh, things like the Saratoga sale and New York Bread yearling sale, which we didn't have last year. Of course, looking forward to the July sale coming up soon. Um, what are some of the things coming up throughout the rest of the year that you'll be most involved in and maybe looking forward to as well? Yeah, you know, we're just we're just kind of getting to the groove now of the yearling mm-hmm. sales. So we're uh, just starting to film for the July sale. Um, and I think that, you know, it takes a half second for everybody to realize that the two-year-old season is, is done or about done um, and kind of switch hats. And, and um, everybody likes to take like a week or two to catch their breath and then <laughs> get, get rolling with the, uh, with the yearling sales. So we're not, you know, we're not uh, reinventing the wheel with the, the business this year. We've got some kind of exciting things in the works um beyond the the yearling season um but you know i'm just excited to get out there and and start seeing the babies again and uh you know we'll start you know having a a more settled routine this year versus last year where Mm -hmm. everything was so compressed you had you know no no july no saratoga you had the phasic sale just preceding the uh, the keeneland september sale so there was a you know it was was a crazy time last year and i I think i'm just most looking forward to kind of getting into a good groove this year with my team and and uh, and just start knocking out some videos, you know. Well, looking forward to seeing them. I uh, got to work uh, with Lucas a couple of years ago at the July sale, in fact, uh, doing some videos. And um, you're so talented. I think what you do is amazing. And I really appreciate you coming on the show and uh, talking a little bit about what you do. Thank you so much, Lucas. Yeah, you bet. You do a great job with everything. And, and uh, you know, it's appreciated. So happy to be joined now by a man who has literally, I think, done it all um, in the horse racing industry, Jeff Bloom. Jeff, thanks so much for joining me today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Acacia. Uh, You were a jockey, bloodstock agent, owner. Um, You and I worked together on Horse Racing Radio Network. Uh, I mean, you've worked in so many facets um, of the industry. What do you think you've enjoyed most, I guess, would be the first question. Well, that's such an easy question. Obviously, the highlight of my entire career would tie back into partnering up with you, covering the Triple Crown. Aw, I like that. <laughs> Everything is second after that. Aw. <laughs> no, look, it's it's been just um, an incredible experience, an incredible ride. I have essentially spent my entire life involved in the world of horse racing. And so I think every aspect of it finds its own um, sort of... Um, you know, excitement, enjoyment, mm-hmm. and, and interest. But at the end of the day, getting on the backs of, of racehorses is by far the best. There's really nothing that compares to that. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, being, um, having had the opportunity to actually ride in races and exercise horses uh, certainly stands out. But, you know, you keep looking for that next thrill, that next excitement. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's what's so great about, about horse racing. Do you think having those experiences riding and, and exercising horses, how did that play a role in shaping how you then were looking at horses when you were going to buy them at sales? How do you think that that really played into it? I think um, you can't make light of it. I mean, it's certainly a significant value add in terms of um, the ability to um, have that extra facet of knowledge in terms of understanding the mechanics of horses, in terms of you know how they carry themselves, how they move. Uh, you know, there's so much of what we do uh, in, in, in the selection process where I, I always sort of describe it as it's, it's half science and it's half art. 
And Mm -hmm. for me, so much of what I do in terms of making those final selections ties into sort of that gut instinct and that um, assessment of what you can feel and learn from watching and, and seeing how a horse reacts to things. So certainly being on the backs of so many different horses um, as a jockey, never really getting the chance to ride really good horses, but certainly getting to ride a lot of races. And then as an exercise rider, um, getting on the backs of so many incredible, talented, grade one winners I was fortunate Mm -hmm. to be on. So I think, you know, covering that full spectrum, no question has, you know, added value to my ability to go out there and identify what I hope and think are going to turn out to be good racehorses. And I know you did business school in between, but tell me about the transition of going from riding to being an owner to being an agent. What was that transition like for you? Yeah, for me, so, um, you know, I started so early uh, in racing. And in fact, I graduated high school early so I could start riding races. And mm-hmm. the end of my riding career, which I had pockets of success, but I knew uh, fairly early into the process that, you know, my riding career wasn't going to, uh, it wasn't going to last a super long time and I wasn't going to be extremely successful. So what am I going to do? And I decided that I wanted to go back to school so that I would have a way to fall back on some other thing besides um, being forced to stay in racing. And so I got a business degree, uh, an actual, uh, actually finance. And I was a financial analyst for a short period. And then, um, you know, I continued on doing um, a number of things in in business technology, um, software services, but running business development. But the whole time I stayed in racing, still getting on horses and and, um, staying involved on the media side. Uh, But but so the school thing was just sort of a, hey, you know, I think it'll be good for me to have some type of fallback. And the reality is when I was out of racing, all I wanted to do was be back in it. (laughs) You know, I found my way back into racing 100%, which was the best decision I had ever made. I was, you know, I was doing really well in the business world, but missed racing so much. It's in my blood. and, And so... Uh, the transition came by way of actually um, getting involved with the folks at West Point Thoroughbreds. And, mm-hmm. and so Terry Finley and I worked together for uh, about seven years. And and I realized that it was probably time for me to go out on my own, do my own thing. And, and so it was just sort of a transition, you know, of um, getting myself back into racing and, and learning that aspect, that side of the business. And, and uh, fortunately, it all essentially worked out. Mm-hmm these horses teach you something new every day. You know, there's always some different lessons that they're going to show you often the hard way too, um, as anybody that's been around horses as well, familiar with what are some of the biggest lessons that you've picked up along the way being at the sale, some things that you can be forgiving of, and and then some things that you really have to kind of draw a hard line about. You know, I really like that question, Acacia, because I have, you know, I have a methodology that I've developed over the years in terms of, what I apply for identifying horses that are going to fit our program, but you kind of have to continue to evolve and be willing to be open to um, change and, and, and maybe realizing that how you're doing things needs an adjustment here or there. So I think more than anything else to your question, I've learned to be more forgiving as it relates to the way a horse is put together um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, when I talked earlier about there's there's sort of a science and art, we can all look at horses and understand confirmation, how a horse is put together, whether they're back at the knee, whether they have other imperfections. 
And, and what I found is so much of it is really how a horse gets through the motion, gets through the movement, their mechanics, and the way that they sort of carry themselves, their presence. So I identify a lot more with that. And also certain medical imperfections. I never like to start from behind with a horse, but at the same mm-hmm. time, I think there are certain, I'm not going to call them ailments, but certain sort of medical issues that a horse might have that really will never end up being an issue for the horse as they continue to develop. So yeah. I, you know, I think, you know, like, like all of us that are trying to find that next best horse, uh, again, it's not an exact science, but I continue to allow my methodology have adjustments here and there as I continue to go through the process. You talked about presence and there's very few that have a presence on the racetrack like Midnight Beast who did. I mean, just exuding class. Um, I, I was fortunate enough to see her in person a couple of times and um, she's just so beautiful too. I'm sure you've talked about her many, many times, but I can't imagine it gets old talking about her. And what what did she mean to you? And, and again, that just that presence that she had on the racetrack. Well, it, it really is hard to describe in just words what Midnight Bizu uh, meant and continues to mean to me and all of those of us who were fortunate enough to be part of that whole experience. But more than anything else, you're right, in terms of her class and her elegance, she mm-hmm. was an incredible or is an incredible combination of this enormous amount of athletic ability, this desire, but the way she carries herself just, as you said, exudes so much class and presence. And I will say that it's always been there from day one. I mean, she always had this sort of thing that they either have or they don't, and it continued to show up even more, you know, and and, and one of the really fun things about Midnight Bizu is um, if you did get a chance to meet her, you knew like around the barn, you know, you could hang out with her and, and want to hang out with her and feed her peppermints and carrots and pet her mm-hmm. with her around the barn. And then as soon as that saddle got on her back, it, it was like a prize fighter walking into the ring. And, you know, now let's take the gloves off. It's, it's all business. It's all about that drive and determination. And I was so fortunate to um, have been able to get on her back. Uh, we, right before her run in the, um, cool. I just blanked out on the race at Monmouth. Um, yeah. Uh, it shows you how old I'm getting. Um, <laughs> uh, but anyways, it, it was, I, um, we didn't send an exercise rider, and, and Steve Asmussen and Scott Blasey said, hey, bring your tack. And so I'm like, well, are you sure? <laughs> but, you know, she took care of me. But it's, it's one of those things. When you're around good horses, um, you can feel it, you can sense it, and you know it. And it's really hard to describe somebody who's never been on the back of a racehorse to understand what that means, but you know it when you feel it, when you see it, when you're there. Mm-hmm. How amazing was that, that you were able to climb on her back too, and, and kind of a full circle moment? Well, more than anything else, I was so like petrified of, <laughs> like I wasn't scared that I, you know, like I'm going to get hurt or something's going to happen. I just didn't want to be the one who screwed up. And it's like Scott um, Blasey was on the pony alongside of me and he kept saying like, don't worry, the big mare is going to take care of you. And, and as soon as I got on her back, you know, and started adjusting my stirrups, it was kind of like all of that fear went away because she is such a classy individual. And it was just so fun to be able to know that I, I was able to, to ride around on a racetrack on Midnight Bizu, yeah. you know, and, and, and that's something that will, you know, never be taken away from me. And, and I'm so glad that I was able to do that. 
Mm-hmm. Now, as you said, you're always kind of looking for the next big one. She sold for $5 million. Um, it was booked to curl in, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, it, it has to be exciting to be able to kind of follow along to her legacy as well and a, a giant gift that she gave you with what she did on the racetrack and then moving on to her next career. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's, it's, there is a day go by that I don't reflect on what that experience was, everything she did for myself, my family, my partners, and the fact that I do get to continue to overlook and manage her career because one of the partners, um, Chuck and Lori Allen, mm-hmm. and Andrew Yaffe, decided that they wanted to um, continue on with Midnight Bizu. And, and of course, I'm involved with um, managing their portfolio. So I get to still stay involved. And, and uh, as as it turns out, it looked like there there really wasn't a better fit for Midnight Bizu than Curlin. And, you know, you're talking about um, Curlin retiring as the champion, um, all, uh, whatchamacallit, um, most successful earning mm-hmm. um, uh, Colt on the dirt and then Midnight Bizu, the winningest mare on the dirt. So one would expect that when that baby arrives, it's going to be a special baby and we find out that uh, she's expecting a cult too. So it's very exciting. Oh, that's really exciting. I can't wait to see that. Um, she was really something special. I like so many. I was such a big fan. Um, we're recording this on the day of the Mother Goose at Belmont. And we reflected on her Mother Goose win and just those ears up. And she kind of captured everybody with the way that she did things. And um, so fun to see a horse that does it so easily like that too. That was the other thing, Acacia. Um that uh, so often in the throes of battle, you she was just so easily identifiable um, and mm-hmm. on the track with those ears up and that focus, that just absolute laser focus. And like I said, you know, I was talking about earlier, you know, you would you would be around midnight around the barn and casual, relaxed. There's no nervousness, any kind of um, anxiousness, and then and then it again, the saddle's on her back and, and you would see that come through in every single one of her races. And, and, uh, that, that race in particular, the mother goose was such a thrilling, I mean, all of her races really were, you know, there was never a time when there wasn't, um, a race that stood out, but, uh, uh, certainly, you know, from start to finish an incredible ride. Mm-hmm. And as you said, looking always for the next one to, um, does having a horse like that and then going back to sales, is it a little bit more pressure to try and say, I need to find another Midnight Bisu? I'm always curious of some of the, you know, the mindset uh, after having such a special one. Well, so look, we're, we all want to find mm-hmm. that Saturday afternoon horse. And yeah. and so, you know, when you're, when you're looking at those horses at the sales and stuff, you're, you're just hoping you're finding yourself a horse that's going to go out there and perform, make it to the races and, and do good things on the racetrack. Do you ever expect that you're going to find a champion? You hope, you know, um, mm-hmm. or any more pressure. I, I mean, I put so much pressure on myself at every single, so every single mm-hmm. decision I make, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going into that route. I'll never buy a horse where I don't have that strong conviction. So once I've decided that this is a horse, I think is the right horse. You know, I go in with confidence. I assign a value. The hard part, Acacia really is, can I afford to buy this horse? And, Right. You know, we we have always maintained a pretty strict, disciplined budget on what we'll spend on on a horse. So that makes it all the more challenging because there are mm-hmm. a lot of smart people out there 
you know, trying to buy racehorses. That's the hard part is can you afford the horse that you think is the right one? One of the things I've been discussing on this show is this year's market with now having wrapped up the two-year-old sales for the season. There was, of course, a lot of uncertainty last year in 2020 with the pandemic. What are some of the takeaways that you've gathered from this two-year-old season now that we've kind of completed that part of the year? The biggest takeaway for me um, this particular two-year-old selling season was that it's the craziest two-year-old um, <laughs> season I've ever experienced in my life. I mean, it, it was virtually impossible to buy a racehorse. I mean, there was yeah. much pent-up um, interest from people, I think, you know, with um, not being able to do so much for so long. And, and it seemed like there was very little supply for the amount of demand that was there. So... I, I recognized quite early that it was going to be a challenge to to be able to find myself a horse that I could afford, which for all of us involved in racing, that's great. We want to see that kind of activity. We want to see that much interest. But as a buyer, it's like, man, can, how long can it continue like that? Well, we just had the, uh, on June 23rd was the Santa Anita two-year-old in training sale. And um, that was the last one of the season and some big prices there too um, at a, a, a smaller sale compared to some of the others that we saw this season and quite a few California breads in there as well. And I've talked about some of the other state bread programs on this show. And I know that you've been involved with thoroughbred owners of California. Um, tell me a little bit about the the California bread program, um, some of the incentives for Cal breads and uh, maybe some some more emphasis that's been placed on that breeding program over the last couple of years. Yeah, I think like in most regional markets, we've seen such a dramatic downturn in the amount of investment by local breeders and and um, the participants involved. But the reality is there's really never been a better time to get actively involved in the California program. The incentives, both as a breeder and as an owner of a cow bred are significant. I mean, there's, there's, there's so much um, increase in the uh, purse structure and the available um, state specific races that are available to you. And so I think it's just, you know, there's a big lag when there's a downturn, it takes time for uh, a market to recover. And I think a lot of it ties back into, um, you know, the stallion base, which then mm -hmm. ultimately um, then, creates more interest for breeders to bring more mares to the program. But, um, you know, the, the, the folks uh, involved in the TOC, the thoroughbred owners of California, uh, Greg Avioli, who, who steers the ship as the um, head, and then uh, Gary Fenton just stepped in uh, to um, take the role as chairman. There's a really good group of individuals that I was fortunate enough to participate and, and, and be involved with on the board and, and, and some of the new folks coming in are doing some wonderful things to continue to figure out a way to um, generate interest, enhance the program. And of course, as many people are aware, um, Del Mar um, is continuing their very successful ship and win program that encourages mm -hmm. folks to bring horses out, to take advantage of getting a bonus to run in that first race, um, essentially paying for their travel and then a big boost in purse um, for horses that are making um, starts in California after shipping in. Um, and Anita um, inst uh, installed the same type of thing, and Del Mar and Santa Anita are working together so that, um, you know, you're not penalized by running first at Santa Anita before you run. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of good things, Acacia, going on here in the state of California. And as we know, we've seen over the years, in particular in the, in the most recent um, 10 to 20 years, 
um, incredibly successful horses come out of California and win the classes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's wonderful to put the ev- emphasis, some more emphasis on those state bred programs too. Um, being based in New York now, I've seen how successful the New York bred program is and um, love seeing, hearing about some of those incentives for the cow breads too. Um, but another a board that you are very involved on, I wanted to ask you about as well, Jeff, is um, the Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance is of course, everybody knows by now, uh, I am as well, um, being uh, the founder of a TAA organization. But aftercare is such a huge part of the industry as well. Um, tell me a little bit for you, what your outlooks are as far as where aftercare stands in our industry, maybe some things that we need to do and just its overall importance as, as a sport. Well, look, I think for absolutely every single stakeholder involved in the sport of horse racing, it's not just something that everybody needs to be involved in, but it's truly the responsibility of all of us as participants in that um, these beautiful, majestic animals that provide the, everything for us in terms of mm-hmm. what it is. Um, it demands that we have a solution, that we have a plan, that we have programs in place such that we can rehome and position every single one of our beautiful thoroughbred racehorses um, into a successful environment that's safe and rewarding. And we're making huge progress. I think in the last mm-hmm. year's Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance, Um, in its role as overseeing the entirety of what you would call sort of aftercare, if you will, in terms of accreditation, making sure that all of the facilities that become accredited, um, there's such a a rigorous um, um, set of criteria that goes into um, Mm -hmm. becoming an accredited aftercare facility and the funding that it requires to Um, provide these accredited organizations so that they can continue to rehome and repurpose and, and, and care for these animals is, is of the utmost importance. And I think that the industry as a whole has come such a long way in the last few years. And, and Mm -hmm. fortunate that I get to be involved with so many incredible people who are tireless in their pursuit of doing these things, people like yourself to make sure that we're looking after the welfare and, and the safety of, of these beautiful animals and, and what they provide to all of us. And, and, and as I say, I, I, it really is the responsibility of every single stakeholder. And I think mm-hmm. we're seeing um, so much of that more and more with, with owner active participation, racetrack owner active mm-hmm. participation, trainers, jockeys, and, and, and all the folks, the breeders, everybody that, that benefits from each and every one of these beautiful animals that it's important for all of us to share in the efforts and, and the actual funding to make sure that, that these horses have safe places to go. I love hearing all of that. And I know from personal experience how, just how rigorous the criteria is to be an accredited organization, but it's so important. And the TAA does such amazing work and, and kind of serving for a liaison too. And I always tell people, you know, if you're interested in adopting an off-track thoroughbred or volunteering, go through the TAA. So, you know, you're getting an organization that they have already said is doing things the right way. Cause that's an important piece of it as well. It is. And look, there's, there's, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. There's, there's so many facets to the whole uh, uh, you know, process of, of mm-hmm. care. It's, you know, funding of course is, is of the utmost importance. It all comes down to, you know, the economics of it. And once you have that, then it's, you know, well, how, 
How can we facilitate? How can we um, make sure that we have the fundamental, um, pro, you know, sort of the underlying um, safeguards in place and the facilities and the programs to make sure that this is all working right? And that's what TAA is 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 involved in. And, and you know, it's all about the accreditation and the funding. And we continue to pursue that. And we have a lot of good partners, a lot of good people that are actively helping us with this process. Well, Jeff, I have to ask you, um, any exciting things for Bloom Racing Stable that we should be looking out for this summer, at East Coast or West Coast? Yeah, you know, so there's always, uh, you know, where's that, that next big horse? You know, look, we still have <laughs> Napper Sinclair, who uh, mm-hmm. will always be one of my favorites. He'll, he'll be uh, sort of returning to the races as we approach the, the latter part of summer. Um but, uh, you know, I've got a, a number of, of young horses that we think are going to turn out. Um, I've got one horse in particular named Chattawat. And as it turns out, Acacia, he is by Midnight Lou. Go figure. Uh, okay. But he's a, he's a two-year-old colt that I have in training with uh, Steve Asmussen that we expect mm-hmm. to make his debut early Saratoga. So very excited about him. And so, uh, you know, you're, you're just always looking for that, that next, uh, that, that next big horse. And, uh, and hopefully we can continue to make some noise the, the rest of this year with Snapper Sinclair as well. Um, so yeah, you know, Keisha, we're, look, we, we, we've got um, uh, hopes and dreams like everybody else. We've got uh, a number of two-year-olds that we have high expectations for. And, you know, at the end of the day, the great thing about this beautiful sport is you can go from one day to the next and have uh, a shining star. And so that's what, you know, that's what essentially keeps us going. Well, looking forward to seeing uh, some of those runners this summer and uh, and a baby out of Midnight Bisu sometime soon as well. Um, Jeff, thanks so much for taking the time today. It was so fun getting to talk to you. Thank you so much, Acacia. Always look forward to catching up. And that's it for another episode of In the Ring with Acacia Courtney. Um, looking forward to getting a chance to talking about some of the exciting action coming up in the months as we lead into the start of the Saratoga meet, some of the yearling sales as well. And I'm uh, trying to line up some fun and unique guests. So as always, if you have any ideas or things that you're interested in, please send me a message. Please share this podcast with anybody that you think may be interested in it. A big thank you to Lucas and to Jeff um, for taking the time uh, to share their insight and share their stories. And as always, if you're not signed up for the In The Money Media newsletter, you should do so. There's a lot of great stuff uh, for my colleagues over there for whatever piece of the industry you're interested in. And make sure you check out all of the great content on In The Money Media. For now, I will talk to you next week on In The Ring with Acacia Courtney. Thanks for joining me. Take care, everyone. <laughs>